Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. A big story and a new development. You hear this? Airlines arguing Canadian Transportation Agency. It has exceeded its authority, according to several airlines. The Supreme Court of Canada has agreed to hear an appeal on a case concerning the scope of this country's protection for air travelers. That's you and me, people that book the airlines. Uh, This is for the rules for compensation for passengers for canceled or delayed flights and lost baggage. We heard a lot about this uh, back earlier. Well, toward the end of last year, earlier this uh, back in December, you know, when we had a lot of weather delays and a whole bunch of problems at the airports. But this case actually goes back to 2020 when the International Air Transportation Association, Air Canada, Porter Airlines, and several foreign carriers all filed a civil suit with the Federal Court of Appeal challenging a number of the new CTA regulations supposed to protect you and me. Hmm. Is it time to do something more to kind of curb the powers of the airlines? Or do the airlines have it right and we're all just a bunch of whiny babies? Well, let's bring in Taylor Backrack, the federal NDP transportation critic. Thanks, Taylor, for joining us. Good afternoon, Bruce. So this is really kind of surprising because I thought that the airlines were all on board with doing the right thing and bringing in all the right protections when it comes to things like, uh, you know, lost baggage, which we saw a lot of last year, and uh, those flight delays. What's going on? Yeah, I don't know if that's how I'd characterize it, that they're they're on board with these increased protections. They've been fighting this from the very beginning. Uh, as soon as the, the federal government brought in the first round of air passenger protections, the airlines pushed back. Uh, obviously, they want the ability to treat passengers in a, in a number of different ways, as we've seen over the past two years. And, um, you know, we saw multiple travel seasons with passengers sleeping on the floor of airports and flights canceled and people's plans upended. Uh, obviously, some of that had to do the, with the extraordinary circumstances of the pandemic. But even since then, we've seen uh, airlines treating passengers in ways that they really shouldn't be treated. And now what we see is is that they've persisted with this court case, essentially challenging the government and uh, pushing back on the government's attempt to regulate uh, the airlines. Um, I don't I don't think that's a good sign. I think we need. Well, as you know, I've been arguing that we need a government that's willing to stand up to the airlines. We need actually tougher laws than than we've seen put in place. So we'll see what the Supreme Court says. Uh, the lower court, the, the federal court of appeal, has already rejected the airline's argument. Uh, and we'll see what happens when it goes to the highest court. Well, the regulations, as they stand now, require that the airlines explain to passengers the reason for flight delays and cancellations and provide 
some certain free services, things like, uh, oh, food and drink. If you're going to be stuck in an airport for 11, 12 hours, oh, washrooms, if a flight is delayed on the tarmac, uh, and, uh, you know, things like that. These are just kind of common sense things to me, but not to the airlines. Well, and I think what they're really pushing back on is the compensation that they're supposed to pay passengers when their flights are delayed past a certain number of hours or canceled altogether for reasons that are within the airline's control. And this has been a, a real, uh, you know, area of, um, of controversy and conflict between the government and the airlines and those of us who want to stand up for air passenger rights. Uh, the airlines really um, are arguing that a whole suite of things are outside their control, including things like having enough crew to fly the airplane. I think most of your listeners will have been on an airplane sitting on the tarmac waiting for the pilot to show up from another flight. And I, I think what it speaks to is the fact that right now, um, obviously, there's a capacity crunch in the airline industry. And the airlines are trying to make up for lost ground. They're trying to fly more flights than they have the airplanes and the staff to fly. And the passengers are the ones that are paying the price. I don't think that's right. I think we can have a situation where we have successful, profitable airlines and we insist that they treat air passengers properly. That's really the goal of legislation and regulations that have been coming out since this lawsuit was filed. The government has come out with a revised version of its uh, air passenger yeah. regulations and it is currently uh, finishing up consultation on them and those are supposed to come into force soon. Uh, we don't even think those go far enough, but they're they're certainly stronger than the first iteration that they came out with. So, um, you know, this is going to be a continued back and forth. And hopefully that the, the highest court, the Supreme Court, is going to create some certainty and tell the airlines to sit down, treat air passengers right. And, you know, uh, stop filing these, these suits that are, are pushing back on legitimate government regulation and legislation. Well, here's the interesting thing. As I mentioned, this goes back to 2020. And back 2020, uh, three years ago, it was seen that the airline regulations, uh, the compensation and such was not all that great. And then there was more and better legislation to improve that. But this this case right now is appealing the last one before the new rules came in, which are supposed to be stronger. So we're yeah, that, really right. going backwards and, and there, two times. We really are. And part of that is the, the amount of time that it's taken for this to reach the Supreme Court. Uh, there have been, uh, you know, changes in legislation that have taken place since then. Uh, this is an evolving, evolving picture. What, what the airlines are asserting is, first of all, that the CTA overstepped its, its own legislation, its enacting legislation, and, and um, put regulations in place that it wasn't empowered by legislation to do. And secondly, that the regulations, and this is the first round of regulations, were contradictory with the Montreal Convention and international rules around the treatment of, of air passengers. And, and like I said, the, the Federal Court of Appeal uh, pretty much rejected all but one of those arguments. And since then, the government has updated the Canadian Transportation Act that passed through Parliament uh, before the summer and, and is now working on finalizing the regulations that are going to be built on that. They've promised that it's going to be the strongest air passenger protection in the world. I'm a bit uh, doubtful because, of course, they said that in 2019 when they came out with the first iteration. But uh, we're going to stay on top of them until they finally stand up to the airlines and insist that they treat air passengers right. Bruce Claggett in for Jazz. 
Supreme Court of Canada, we now find out, is going to hear the airline's challenge to the federal passenger protection rules. The airline's, of course, arguing that the Canadian Transportation Agency has exceeded its authority. Yeah. And our guest uh, just before the break and continuing with us now is federal NDP transport critic Taylor Backrack. Taylor, got to ask you uh, if the airlines are saying, hey, the Canadian Transportation Agency, you're not the boss of me. Are they right? Well, no, they're not right. This is the federal government regulator that is uh, charged with, under legislation, charged with regulating the airlines and the air passenger experience. So, uh, you know, there there is legislation and, and there's plenty of, of precedent for this sort of thing. So we'll see what the Supreme Court does with this case. I, I think ultimately what we can do is we can compare ourselves to other jurisdictions around the world and how they handle these things. And the gold standard is the European Union and its treatment of air passengers under its regulations. And in, in Europe, uh, compensation is the norm when flights are delayed and cancelled and, and airlines uh, treat passengers poorly. They have a much better system. And, and since 2019, the Liberal government has been trying to create something similar in Canada. But of course, they're under extreme pressure from the airlines, which have a, a tremendously powerful lobby in Ottawa. And the result has been that it's taken several iterations and several tries to get it right. And now on top of that, we have this court case, uh, the airlines essentially pushing back. So uh, it's certainly disappointing to to see. But my hope is that um, not only will uh, the court case fail, but um, that the new regulations will finally succeed at getting air passengers the, the kind of treatment that they deserve. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that army and the soldiers that are in there uh, for the airlines, uh, the lawyers and the lobbyists and such. Uh, do Does the federal government, meaning the liberal government, stand a chance of uh, not being influenced by the airlines? What say you? Well, I, I do think that they have a tremendous influence, and we've actually seen evidence of that, their influence over the, the CTA, and, and we've seen uh, communication during the pandemic between people in the minister's office and the CTA uh, essentially um, responding to the concerns of the airlines. And, and from the outside, at least, it looks like uh, putting the concerns and the situation the airlines are facing above the situation that the passengers are facing. So we need to, to flip the script and we need a, a minister of transport and a federal government that really have passengers backs, that, that put passengers' needs first. And I think Airlines in Canada can be commercially successful and treat air passengers right. Those those things aren't mutually exclusive. Well, that comes to what I was about to ask. Uh, can they be commercially successful? We've seen smaller airlines certainly fail and larger airlines with massive layoffs. Is the industry in that bad a shape that they can't uh, pay for this? Is that one of the arguments? Well, they always, uh, you know, threaten passengers with increased prices. They say, well, if you make it too onerous and you put too many regulations in place, then we're going to have no choice but to pass on those costs to air passengers. But what we're seeing right now with the increased air travel demand is that airlines like Air Canada are doing very well again. They're exceeding their, their profit targets and, uh, you know, financially, they're they're back in good shape. So, it shows that there's room to uh, improve service and to abide by the new regulations and make sure that when passengers face uh, extraordinary circumstances that upend their plans and impact their lives, that they get compensation, which is really the goal of, of the regulations. 
You know, if they don't get their own way and if the prices actually do go up, and I'm not talking about domestic flights, I'm talking about like vacation flights or international flights. Do you think uh, airports, like I look at Vancouver, airports in Bellingham and Seattle will see more Canadians going south and booking American Airlines? I, I'm not sure. That's that's a good question. I think uh, for a lot of Canadian markets, that's not an option. So uh, we wouldn't see that effect. But ultimately, if we have competition in the airline space, then uh, there's going to be room for airlines that treat passengers really well, and they're going to get, get more of the market share. Uh, I think that's how it's supposed to work. Unfortunately, in, in many areas, we don't have a very competitive airline sector, and, and so you know we're left to regulations to, to really... Um, ensure that that passengers aren't mistreated. Well, uh, certainly. But we also mm. go ahead. Well, I have to cut it short there for time, unfortunately. And there is so much more to talk about, and we'll certainly uh, try to bring you back at some point. But thank you so much for this, and uh, it is going to be a battle ahead, Taylor. Thanks for your time, Bruce. We're gonna we're gonna keep fighting for passengers, and we'll be watching this court case closely. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. What is a 200-square-foot apartment really worth? 2000 bucks on the downtown east side? Over at the Lotus Hotel, you know, that hotel that's been there for years. Uh, The rates, by the way, at the Lotus used to be on par as a hotel with uh, kind of what you would expect for a shelter rate. But this happened this week. Suddenly, we've got on TikTok a video that many people thought was a joke of a small 200-square-foot apartment being shown off for $2,000 rent. Yeah, it was clean, but it is really small. And in a neighborhood that is, how do you put it politely, uh, it's got its own challenges. The downtown east side, if you walk out, go around the back, you can see some things that may not necessarily be a comfortable spot for many people who would want to rent. So $2,000 for 200 square feet in Vancouver in the downtown east side. Here's what the video actually sounded like. This is the neighborhood. This is a 200, yeah, 200 square foot apartment in downtown east side. This is your living room. This is the price. Okay, that's a clip from it. Sex in the City uh, music in the background, I think. Uh, but anyways, that is, uh, that's what the going rate is, and it was not supposed to be a joke. But I think it underscores a bigger problem in this city. And for that reason, we bring in Councillor Pete Fry from the City of Vancouver. Good to have you in studio with us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, what do you make of this when you saw the video? Uh, first blush reaction. Um. I was a little shocked to see it sort of styled that way as a, as a TikTok influencer kind of vibe. And I thought, oh, wow, they're really upselling this. Um, but I was really dismayed after watching it. And I, and I should add that that 200 square foot uh, micro apartment yeah. with, with, for $2,000, I'm pretty sure that doesn't include a toilet. 
So typically with SRAs, they're, they're shared toilets. There's a bank of toilets at the end of the It had a shower in there. It had a shower, but But they but skipped no to- over the toilet, and some people I see in some of the comments were asking whether it had a toilet or not, and I didn't see anything that indicated a toilet to me. Well, so so what we, actually in the city of Vancouver, we have an SRA bylaw that protects that kind of housing stock. It doesn't protect it at the price, but it protects that kind of housing stock. Now, typically, SRO hotels throughout the downtown east side were developed as small bed-sit rooms with a, with a sink, maybe a yeah. hot plate, a bed, and you would have a shower and toilets down the hall kind of thing. That oh, okay. And it was designed that way. And that's why SROs for the longest time have been the kind of last resort of housing as they're now aging stock. But they're, they're cheap and affordable because you don't have a toilet. You don't have to service that kind of plumbing. <clears throat> Now, the city bylaw protections protect that style of housing. So if you wanted to go in there as a big real estate investment trust yeah. like these guys are and wanted to convert it out of and add a, a, its own toilet, that would trigger the SRA bylaw, which would mean you'd have to pay out about $200,000 a door to make that conversion to the city of Vancouver, which we would then put into replacement housing. What they've potentially done here is skirt that bylaw by not adding a toilet. Yeah. And just upselling, uh, you know, a small room with a shower and some IKEA furniture and a fresh coat of paint. Well, fresh coat of paint, and it did look clean. I'll give it that sure. much. Yeah, it looked clean. It looked um, nice enough to live in, certainly, but uh, without a toilet. And if it skirts the bylaws on it, it's um, one would also have to wonder if it's up to code with even things like fire protection. I know that there has been uh, our chief building officer has been looking at at some of the issues in that building and maybe uh, whether or not everything was done with permits, but that's sort of a, a secondary conversation and I couldn't really give more yeah. light to those that notion. But I will say that that what we're seeing is largely, with the exception of any kind of permit issues, this is 100% legal. This is um, the unfortunate reality of housing in the city of Vancouver. The location is is very close to, to GM Place, so you could, you know, you're close to the stadiums, you're close to Chinatown, you're close to Gastown, downtown. It's walking distance from all those places. So geographically, even though it's half a block off Hastings Street in a really kind of rough area, it's not a bad uh, walking distance location. So it probably has a pretty good walk score when you look at it that way. And so it's, it's attractive to a certain set of people. Ideally, uh, I think we see a lot of foreign students coming in who are going to, say, Vancouver Film School, which is very yeah. close by. It makes sense for them. The sad reality, though, is that this is housing that's affordable typically to people on pensions and shelter rate, and they have nowhere to go. And what's even more alarming is a lot of these conversions that are happening. And And this one's become a highlight because it's all over TikTok. But but this has been happening for the better part of a decade where more sort of boutique landowners have been buying up these older hotels. The fact that this is a big Toronto real estate investment trust is is new and doing it on TikTok is new. But the reality is this has been playing out for a while, and we've seen this trend, and we're not developing any kind of replacement housing that's affordable to folks on shelter or, or old, age, old age pension. And we know that that is the need in that neighborhood that we're seeing this for. These, so, with this housing gone, these people have yeah. nowhere to go but the streets. So shelter system, living in a tent in the park, those, kind of, those are the options left after the SRO stock is depleted. Pete, after taking a look at the video... Who do you think the market is? Who are they going after? Is it just, as you mentioned, like students that may be going to one or two schools that are downtown? Or is it an international market? Like it's... You know, I've also seen these kind of units marketed as as executive uh, hotels. So maybe maybe you live on a Gulf Island on the weekends with your family and you come into town and you work uh, and you have a convenient sort of pied-a-terre that's close to the central business district. 
that that is has been marketing uh, has been a marketed approach for some of these units that I've seen converted. Yeah, I'm even thinking at two thousand dollars a month, that's uh, not realistic for even a student or a young person that's coming into the city. You're not going to be having a roommate in that apartment. No, no. I, I mean, it might work for a couple, but it'd be pretty crowded. It wouldn't work for me and my <laughs> wife. That's for sure. We'd be at each other's throats, but I think, you know, it could potentially work in that context, but I think it, it's really being geared towards folks who are willing to pay for that convenience of location. Where do we go from here after seeing this video? Is it alarming enough that you think you're going to get people asking some bigger, tougher questions at the city? You know, I was with, uh, I was at a housing announcement with the minister, the federal minister of housing, Sean Fraser yesterday, and he actually brought up the idea that, that, it was a mistake for the federal government to get out of the housing business back in the 1990s and that we need to see some real investment in housing from the federal government uh, to develop the kind of affordable housing that, that, that lower income people and even the median income people in the city of Vancouver can afford. Because right now, we're really relying on the market to provide the housing that we need to deal with our, our appallingly low vacancy rates and the need for housing. But the reality is, is the market cannot and will not deliver affordable housing. And the median income in the city of Vancouver is below $50,000 a year. Yeah. So if, if we're going to try and find housing, that's, that is not $2,000 a month for a micro suite. We're talking just before the break about this TikTok video. Everything goes viral, but this one really did. Lots of reaction to it. $2,000 rent for 200 square feet, a Vancouver apartment being widely criticized for that. Uh, the video that did appear on TikTok. A lot of people thought it was humorous, kind of making fun of a situation, which isn't very funny at all. Uh, but it turned out to be real. It was a promotion for that piece of rental property. It's at the Lotus. We've been talking with Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry about uh, about some of the realities when it comes to the housing crisis and rental crisis in this city. In the break, we're talking about the Lotus itself, a hotel that's been around for many years in Vancouver. And as an SRO, uh, before any conversions even, uh, it was not one of the worst. It was uh, seen as a pretty good hotel with a uh, dedicated Number of residents had been there for years. Yeah, yeah. No, I've so I've lived in the downtown east side and around the neighborhood for about thirty years, and I've been in a lot of SROs, and I know lots of folks who've lived in SROs. And Lotus certainly was one of the more sort of stable ones, and and a lot of pensioners in there. And I think that's the one thing that your listeners need to understand too is that a lot of the folks who live in in these hotels, they're not all mental mental health or addictions kind of folks that we see causing chaos. These are largely pensioners and folks who are uh, on disability. And we have a ton of folks who uh, that I've met that get injured on the job, and it could happen to any one of us. And then it's a slippery slope, and they don't have the supports there for them, and they end up living in the the most affordable housing, which tends to be these SRO units, which are now under the sort of predatory kind of interest of of big investors that see the opportunity to to kick out the low rent tenants and replace them with tenants that can pay substantially more. And so that's why we're seeing these buyout offers for some of these old timers to take a couple of thousand bucks to split. And free up this unit that they can then turn around and, and increase the rent from six hundred dollars a month to two thousand dollars a month and and really reap significant profits. Okay, so what can be done about that? Um, I know you're not with a side of majority on council, but what should council be doing to kind of combat this and to make sure that there is housing for people in the neighborhood that you identified? 
Well, it, it, it's complicated. I mean, we need that that other levels of government to, to make those investments as well. We need to really see that investment. As a city, we did try and introduce uh, what we call vacancy control on, on SRO units, uh, which was basically controlling, the, I mentioned earlier, that SROs are defined by the housing typology, not the rent. We wanted to sort of tie the rents to it so that even on tenant turnover, they would be rented out at a, at a lower price point. That was shot down by the courts. And and it is a difficult scenario when we're talking about a, a, a private market investor uh, to tell them that they can't raise the rents to pay for necessary improvements. A lot of these buildings are 100 plus years old and they are falling apart and they do need significant investment. I don't know that that's necessarily the case with the Lotus, but it is the case yeah. with some of them. And, and the landlord successfully argued that you can't ha- tie our hands and force us to not raise the rents to pay for necessary renovations, lest this building become a fire trap. And we know, of course, that we've seen a number of fires in substandard buildings that are poorly maintained. So it's deadly fires, deadly fires. And it's a very tricky balance to try and figure out how we can replace this stock. And the province is very interested in replacing this stock altogether with self-contained units and more supportive housing, but it takes money and it's money that the city of Vancouver can't, can't reasonably uh, provide to do this kind of work. So we need help from all levels of government and we need to take a really bigger picture than just the city of Vancouver too, because this is not just a city of Vancouver downtown. A lot of folks would say, this is the most expensive real estate market in the country. Why are you putting yeah. low-income people right downtown? Well, first off, many of these people have lived there for decades and it's their home too. So I don't buy the notion that we should be displacing them, but I do recognize that we can't sustain all the low uh, affordable. Like Vancouver does about 55% of the social and supportive housing for Metro Vancouver. We need to spread that out a little bit more and we need to spread it out not just in the region, but in the province as well. Well, let's pull back. I often think of uh, what is a a good, healthy city in terms of housing. And one way to kind of look at it, in my mind, is you take your average public high school teacher, uh, maybe a couple, two public high school teachers, combine their salary and can they afford rent or to buy? And in Vancouver, that's not a reality. No. Will it ever be a reality? Uh, I don't know how it's going to work out with, with the ability to buy uh, for two teachers in the city of Vancouver. That seems like it might But might even to happen. rent and but, to have kids. Yeah. And so that's where we need to see significant investment. In, and, and the challenge is, is that as the city, we don't do a lot of the investing in the housing. We do some, but we try and make policies that will allow the, the creation of more rental housing. We're in a bit of a doldrums right now because of interest rates, labor yeah. shortages, we need to see a big scale up in trades training to make sure that we have people who can actually build the housing that we need. The federal government's you know, promised that we're yeah. allowing half a million new immigrants to Canada a year, I believe it is. And we are nowhere near um, building the amount of housing that we're going to need to deliver for, for those people, for current residents, for residents' children, and recognizing that we also have confluent interests like short-term rentals and Airbnbs where folks are taking viable long-term rental housing and converting it into short-term rental, quick-profit Airbnb properties, which is a whole other ball of wax we could probably spend a lot of time on. Well, light at the end of the tunnel, if you're to look at something that gives you any promise or hope or optimism with this, is there anything? I was pretty stoked to hear what Sean Fraser, the Minister of Housing for the federal government, had to say yesterday about, like, the, the. I think that there is a recognition that the feds maybe need to take another look at how they can really invest in housing for Canadians. Uh, the low-interest loan program that they're they're yeah. subsidizing that is keeping shovels in the ground because uh, financing is really challenged by interest rates right now for private developers. So that's going to help to at least build more supply. But we need to have a 
much bigger and more intentional conversation. Canada is one of the only G7 nations without a national housing strategy that builds housing for, for folks. And that's something I think we could all reflect on and what our values as Canadians are about and taking care of each other. Vancouver City Councillor Pete Fry, thanks for coming in and talking about this important one. Yeah, it is. Last half hour, we were talking with Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councillor, following that promotional video on TikTok, $2,000 for 200 square feet. A lot of reaction to that. Not the reaction they expected. A lot of people thought it was a joke. Uh Uh-uh, no joke. Uh, But there are some real personal stories with this. And for that, I want to bring in show contributor Jerry Mayer Judson to talk a little bit about her personal story and uh, what do you make of that video, first of all? You oh, saw it on TikTok. And I've been following this story for a little while, yeah. actually, because it was a story a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, where uh, it was, you know, the, the the property management company that owns the Lotus Hotel were offering residents buyouts to vacate the unit, move out. Right. And yeah, and, the, and the, the buyouts were, in my less than humble opinion, just sort of not enough for someone could get back on their feet yeah. and secure housing again. And uh, these people were... Were, you know, a lot of them, those who chose to speak to the media, some had disabilities, some had issues with mental illness. And these people, they kind of felt like they were hounded. And so pretty tragic story. And, the, and then the ones that do get all spruced up by uh, by the company, granted, the company would only offer the payout when housing had been secured and that was confirmed. So that is a humanitarian. But uh, yeah, $2,000 for 200 square feet with not a confirmed toilet. That is like... Yeah, I found that interesting. Uh, I noticed that and uh, Pete Fry made a good point. Uh, You know, when that hotel, you take a look at the Lotus and probably, and we're still guessing, we don't know, Mm -hmm. but uh, I think he is pretty much spot on. Uh, No, that's not all uh, plumbed up for, uh, for a toilet that's shared on that floor. Does have a shower does have a shower, and I, I I shudder to think of the uses that that shower might get up to in, in the absence of your own personal well, toilet yeah, that they, you yeah. have to share with <laughs> other people. Late at night, you don't want to go in the whole you know hall. What I'm saying? Um, so it's just like a removal of dignity and it's just like, what are we willing to, to settle for, for the distinct pleasure of living in downtown Vancouver? And I was saying to, uh, $2,000 a month, you don't even have like a lot of leftover if, if, if you're paying $2,000 a month all by yourself, you don't even have a lot of leftover income for like buying food or or what have you. You're not even really able to engage in the nightlife given what the median income is in Vancouver. I actually liked what Pete Fry had to say earlier about uh, federal regulation. It was a mistake for the federal government to get out of the housing business back in the 1990s and that we need to see some real investment in housing from the federal government uh, to develop the kind of affordable housing that that, that lower-income people and even the median-income people in the city of Vancouver can afford because right now we're really relying on the market to provide the housing that we need to deal with our, our appallingly low vacancy rates and the need for housing. But the reality is, is the market cannot and will not deliver affordable housing. And the median income in the city of Vancouver is below $50,000 a year. Below $50,000 a year. If your rent check is $2,000 and you're making below fifty, dollars that is, you don't have a lot to play with when you consider internet, phone, even if utilities are covered. It's still, it's pretty bleak. No, you're coming into the downtown from somewhere else. Yes. I live in uh, in Burnaby. I live right across the street from Metropolis at Metrotown. I live right by the SkyTrain. Uh, it's it's beautiful. It has, it's a new building and it has uh, central air. And we made this decision because we're like, well, if we're going to be 
poor because we're renters. Uh, we're gonna at least have a kitchen that we can make food in, so we don't have to go out and kind of just like resource allocation that way. No gas money either because <laughs> we can walk to everything. You know, there was an idea years ago of having regional centers, and there were actually hmm. plans that came out. Uh, Walter Hardwick had a uh, plan, university professor. Uh, in uh, urban geography at UBC mm-hmm. and Colleen Hardwick's uh, father. Uh, but Walter Hardwick uh, often talked about the urban centers uh, being outside of Vancouver mm-hmm. and that being an idea. And I thought that uh, that would be a reality. There is a paper on it too. And that could have been having little cores of places. Sure. So you're not kind of bending the back of Vancouver all the time to pick up the slack in being the only job center, headquarters, or whatever. Totally. But it didn't happen. Didn't happen. We're trying in Burnaby as well. This is just sort of my beat because that's where I live. But uh, building up that downtown, because I suppose technically I do live in the downtown of Burnaby. It's kind of the easternmost little zone, and they're going to move City Hall from from uh, the Edmonds area, I think, and put it... Uh, maybe in the library or maybe um, right by Bonser Recreation Complex and things like that. So Burnaby in particular is really trying to make itself a city where people live and don't just like sleep and work at the mall and then go to Vancouver. Everywhere is trying that one. Yeah. Uh, Whether it works or not, well, there are some steps that are tried and true. Uh, Waves of gentrification Uh. starting with and, you know, maybe it's uh, the university or the arts people come in first and then pick up after that. Who knows? But uh, boy, it's still a challenge. Jerry, any final thoughts? Oh, I mean, credit to credit where credit's due in Burnaby. We are putting in some affordable, not market housing. We have we're working on developing a, a city housing authority to 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 make developments like this. So we're trying and maybe just maybe with all these efforts and all this federal funding, too, we'll see affordable housing by the time I'm 55. Oh, there you go. <laughs> just arbitrary number. Freedom 55. Yeah. Uh, Summertime is made up of great stories and stories that you can say back in the summer of 2023. And here's one, seeing a whale right next to where you're walking. Yeah, coming up right next to the shoreline. And this happened this week. Uh, One of the closest sightings ever of orcas swimming right beside, in this case, Gabriola Island over near Nanaimo, just feet from where people were on the shore. But is it all that rare or is it something that because of the world of social media, we tend to record, put on our phones because we all have those cameras and uh, and talk about uh, and share to a wider audience very quickly? Well, those are some questions I wanted to find out a little bit more about. And I turned to the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and talked with Sean McConaughey, who is the section head for Aquatic Ecosystems and Marine Mammal Science. And Sean, I have to ask uh, the most obvious question. Did you make that, what did you make of the video of an orca hugging the shoreline just off of Nanaimo? Rare or not so rare? Well, so I was just... uh... We'll see those videos again. Those were some uh, videos taken off of Gabriel Island, right off, uh, right off Nanaimo here. Um, I consulted with my colleague Brianna Wright uh, and confirmed that those whales, specifically, were transient killer whales, or also known as big killer whales. And transients are uh, killer whales that prey on other marine mammals like seals and sea lions and porpoises. Um, so they're uh, 
uh, behavior of being close to shore isn't actually that unusual at all, and that's where they would likely find their prey, uh, and in that area specifically harbor seals. When these things hit social media, it's almost like a surprise each and every time, but it still gets a lot of attention. And uh, we also saw some reports earlier this year of orcas coming very close to the Vancouver area. Is it the same sort of deal, the transient ones coming in looking for food? Probably most likely. Uh, I, I don't quite remember that, that specific sightings um, in the Vancouver area, but probably likely transients. Certainly over the last five to ten years, we've seen an increase uh, of observations of um, transient killer whales in the Salish Sea. Um, and that's, uh, we don't exactly have an exact abundance estimate, or we're working on that, uh, but they certainly are here in the area more frequently than they were, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, and I find that interesting, uh, the increase, and I wonder if that is more anecdotal with uh, social media or more people being aware, or if there is really a belief that there are more orcas or transient orcas coming into our area. What do you think? What is the research, the best that you could come to having a good idea? What do you think it's telling us? Well, certainly the uh, ecosystem is, uh, continues to change, and um, the, I'm, 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 I strongly believe that the numbers of transits is certainly going up. Certainly there's way more effort out on the waters, both uh, formally and informally. Um, and through social media, we see a lot, get a lot more of those reportings. Um, I think it's a, it bodes well that uh, the ecosystem is actually uh, maybe on an uptick in terms of um, uh, sufficient uh, means, sufficient groceries for these animals to, uh, to be back in our waters. But the food supply is there. We're seeing more of it now. Is that due to conservation efforts? What's going on? Well, that's a, that's, a good, that's a good question. So if you look at you know, one, one of the prey items, harbor seals, uh, so certainly throughout the Strait of Georgia, um, back in the early 70s, the populations were very low. Um, since, since then, there's been conservation efforts and, and reduced or, in fact, elimination of any hunting uh, or commercial harvest of those animals. And so those populations have rebounded and they um, have been stable at uh, relatively high levels for the last 30 or 40 years. So... The killer whales, you know, they, they live a long time, so it takes a while for their numbers to rebound as well. And, and what we're trying to determine, whether those killer whales, those transient killer whales that are coming back into the Strait of Georgia um, are not just being moving from an area, another area of the coast or whether uh, it's an increase in abundance. And, and our current thoughts are that it certainly is an increase in abundance. I also know that there are many more regulations now than, say, 20 years ago on both sides of the border when it comes to protecting whales, especially in terms of marine traffic, your large freighters, your cruise ships, well, even some smaller boats. Are you monitoring that at the DFO? Is it having any sort of impact, do you think? Well, uh, that, that, that's absolutely right. You know, there has been an increase in regulations uh, and voluntary measures by all different shipping sectors. Um, most of our efforts on that area have been on southern resident killer whales, um, which are uh, endangered, and currently number is 75. So a totally different ecotype than, than what was videoed just the other day. Um, and we have been, uh, done, the government's you know, had very significant investments in terms of the research, uh, understanding the, the level of impact and what those impacts are uh, from shipping, uh, from acoustic disturbances, uh, reduce and addressing the threats of reduced prey availability and contaminants. Those resident ones are the ones that we're seeing 
fewer of, right? Well, it's it's not uh, quite. We also actually have, there's actually a total of, there's three ecotypes. And um, there's residents, and they're comprised of two groups, southern residents and northern residents, and they eat fish, predominantly Chinook. Then we have uh, transients, also called bigs, and they eat marine mammals. Then we have another ecotype that's called offshore, and which are typically found offshore. And we think they eat sharks, uh, predominantly, um, but we don't see those very often. Certainly the, uh, and here's a real conundrum about the residents, is that in the southern residents, the population has declined quite dramatically over the last 20 years by about 25%, uh, and is sort of, we say, struggling, I guess. Uh, whereas northern residents that also eat salmon, their population continues to grow, uh, and at a pretty uh, consistent and steady pace. That's so it's, interesting. It's a conundrum. Why? Yeah, yeah. Do we have any hypothesis? Yeah. Well, I, I think the main issue, there's uh, some hypothesis around genetic bottlenecks. I think the, uh, we've demonstrated that the three threats, primary threats identified for the southern residents around acoustic disturbance, um, reduced prey availability, and contaminants, those three things are working together to limit the uh, recovery of southern residents. The northern residents, um, again, they, they face similar threats, but at different levels and different frequency. So that might be the, the driver. Over the course of the summer, when people do see unusual different sorts of activities, orcas of uh, whatever type in different areas where they're not usually there, is there a method for them to report such sightings? Is it through the DFO or something else? No. Yeah, so the best, the best approach is, uh, again, maintain your distance uh, from any marine mammal because we don't want to be uh, impacting them. But there's a group called the BC Cetacean Sighting Network. Um, online, and they have a 1-800 number where you can report into them, uh, and they will take that information. And we use uh, not only we DFO, but many researchers use that information to understand density and distribution and, and dispersion of different marine mammal species. The BC wildfire situation has gotten a whole lot worse in the past 24 to 48 hours. In fact, West Kelowna in the Okanagan. State of emergency now declared as 68 homes are on evacuation order. And that's not all. In that same area of West Kelowna, there are 5,700 properties, 5,700 properties on evacuation alert. All this as wildfires in the area are looming and coming very close to a very busy area. And that's just one region or one area of the province. There are several other new fires, not the old ones we've been talking about, but these are new fires that broke out in the last day or so. Well, let's get caught up on the situation as it stands right now and take a look at some new concerns for the days ahead. Bring in Sarah Budd, Communications and Engagement Lead at the BC Wildfire Service. Good afternoon, Sarah. Hi, Bruce. You know, I don't know where to start other than let's uh, take a look at the situation in West Kelowna. What is the fire that we're talking about that is such a concern that 5,700 properties have to be on evacuation alert? So I don't have super granular details about McDougal Creek because I'm a provincial information officer, but uh, that is the fire that's burning outside of West Kelowna, McDougal Creek. It's currently about 300 hectares. Uh, You mentioned the orders and alerts off the top, and I'll just add a flag there that folks who are looking for information about evacuation alerts and orders 
should be looking to the local government or Emergency Info BC for that information. That's where you're going to get the best information the soonest. Absolutely. And coming up uh, momentarily after the break, we'll also be checking in with the Emergency Operations Centre in West Kelowna to get a closer look at that one. But as we know, that's not the only fire. If you take a look at uh, the province on a whole, what are we dealing with now that's new? For sure. So um, we've got nine new fires in the last 24 hours. Uh, Four of those are currently out of control. And in the last seven days, we've seen 69 new fires. 14 of those are currently out of control. Um, I would say that sort of recent conditions, we've had this sort of heat wave building through the province, which has encouraged existing fires on the landscape to grow. But we haven't actually seen so many new starts in the past couple of weeks. Um, However, that is forecast to change today. Today is a day where we want everyone to be very alert and watching their local authorities for updates, watching our website for updates, because we are seeing a cold front push through. And when that cold front interacts with the heat that we have currently in the province, that not only creates high winds, but can also create lightning, which we know with these dry conditions leads to new fire starts. Sarah, I'm glad you mentioned that because we all know that the last few days have been hot all across Mm -hmm. the province and there is what one might at first blush think is some relief in the forecast. At least we're not going to be in the upper 30s in some of these areas. But when you have a cold system come through, as you're mentioning, lightning, how many fires are caused by lightning? Is that the number one cause or is it human caused? In the province, we see way more lightning-caused starts uh, than human-caused starts. Um, in the past um, 72 hours, I can tell you that um, 14 of the new fires that have started were caused by lightning, whereas four were caused by humans, and 10 are currently undetermined, which means that we haven't got a good enough eye on what caused them yet to tell you for sure whether it was people or the weather. And what is a region of concern right now, if we're to take a look uh, by region? Yeah, for sure. So the um, southern and central interior, uh, particularly the Kamloops and southeast fire centers, are where we're really keeping a close eye right now. Um, You mentioned McDougal Creek burning outside of West Kelowna. There's also uh, Crater Creek burning outside of Karameas, um, the Adams Lake Complex, and the Bendor Complex, which includes some fires that folks will maybe know, like Downton Lake. Um, So in that sort of central southern interior, we've got incredibly dry conditions right now. And it is that cold front is going to roll through. um, The forecast is a little bit unsure on when, but sort of like late this evening into early tomorrow. Do we have enough resources in place? Uh, I'm talking about uh, people and possibly aircraft uh, to fight any new fires as they come up. Yeah, we've currently got 3,400 people uh, working across the province to um, respond to these fires. That includes BC wildfire crews and contract crews, as well as support staff and international resources. Right now, we actually have support in BC from Mexico, Brazil, Costa Rica, and Australia, as well as some folks from other provinces. Um, We're really grateful for that support. 
That being said, it's going to be a really challenging 48 hours, and we're going to do the best that we can with what we have. Absolutely, and here's hoping for the best with quick putouts as they come up. Sarah Budd, thanks so much. You're welcome. Now, the city of West Kelowna and West Bank First Nation have declared a local state of emergency. 5,700 properties on evacuation alert. Almost 70 others under an order to leave. And this all because of the McDougal Creek wildfire. And in the next 24 to 48 hours, it could be what the BC Wildfire Service says, the most challenging of the summer. And that in a summer where we've already seen so many challenges. So what's going on? Well, it all comes down to the weather. And as much as we think there might be some relief with cooler temperatures, that may not necessarily be the case. Let's bring in Christy Gordon, Senior Meteorologist at Global BC. Christy, good afternoon. Hi, Bruce. You know, one would think that uh, cooler weather conditions, oh, that means less of a danger. But not so, says you, right? No, not at all. So as we transition from this warm air mass to the cooler air mass, it's the cold front uh, moving that sort of cooler air mass in that's going to cause all the problems. So um, it's moved from north to south across the province throughout the day today and will impact most of southern BC this evening and overnight. And this cold front is quite dangerous in that it's going to bring very strong, gusty winds to the interior particularly, but even to the south coast. We're seeing gusty winds already. And we've seen gusts ranging from 40 to 60 kilometres an hour. There's potential for up to about 70 kilometres an hour. But it's not just the strength of those winds, it's also the fact that the winds are going to be quite erratic, meaning coming from different directions as that cold front makes its way across. And in a presser from the BC Wildfire Service today, they said they expect the wildfire behavior to intensify uh, as this cold front makes its way across. So that means uh, the wildfires that we currently have across, across the province Uh, They expect them to grow and challenge the containment lines that they have been working very hard to put in place. They feel that those uh, containment lines are going to be challenged significantly over the next 24 to 48 hours. And if you don't mind me also adding, it's not just the winds that they're concerned about. This cold front is actually a really dry cold front. It's not going to bring in much moisture or even much cloud cover, but it has the potential of bringing What we call is dry lightning, which is just that. So lightning, which comes with very little rain. We have a slight chance of showers across the province, and that's about it. So not only do we have the potential for the current fires being um, uh, um, sort of... um, Uh, the current fires growing, sorry, Um, but then we have the potential for now new fires. So the resources for the BC Wildfire Service are going to be stretched uh, immensely over the next little while. Oh, indeed. So high high winds, dry lightning, drought conditions, couldn't get much worse than that. Um, If we're looking at any areas that you're seeing based on your uh, models and uh, the satellite projections and this type of thing, Is there any area that you would be most concerned about? Well, according to the wind forecast, I think the main areas we'll be watching, particularly this evening and then again tomorrow, will be uh, sort of the Caribou and then down through the Thompson region, the Okanagan Valley, and certainly the southeastern corner of the province of the Southeast uh, Fire Centre. 
Uh, those are the key areas that I'll be watching in terms of some of those strongest gusts. Uh, at this time, they've been ranging 40, 60 kilometers an hour, but there's a, certainly the potential that we could see them become higher. But again, it's not just the wind speed, it's the fact that they're erratic and make it very difficult for the BC Wildfire Service to get a handle on the fires uh, if, they're, if it's moving in all directions. Absolutely. Um, no, I appreciate mm-hmm. it. It's going to be something to watch very carefully. Christy, thank you for your time. That's Christy Gordon, Senior Meteorologist at Global BC. Laura Wilson, by the way, is an Information Officer for Emergency Operations Centre in West Kelowna, and she's with us now. Laura, uh, you heard what Christy had to say. Boy, um, this comes as a large swath of West Kelowna is under evacuation alert. Hi, Bruce. Yes, that's very true. We're expecting it to be an active night uh, on the Medjugorje Creek wildfire here in the central Okanagan. So we are preparing uh, people in the area and we have a number of properties, uh, 5,700 properties currently on evacuation alert and uh, about 68 on evacuation order at this time. You're in the area. How close are the flames to actually that urban interface, the homes? So I uh, haven't seen it myself, actually, being stuck in a building today, but um, I do understand that you can see um, the large plume coming above the West Kelowna area. Um, but really, what is, what's really important for people is that they can do a lot to prepare and be ready uh, in case of wildfire in the area. How are they going to get information? Is there a website? Because uh, web service is uh, still available, mobile service, cell phones. Uh, where can they go for information if the situation turns uh, worse? Yeah, the really important part is for residents in central uh, Okanagan to sign up at cordemergency.ca, and they can get email updates that um, have an initial immediate releases of when we're adding or expanding our evacuation alerts or orders. This is a really important way to keep on top of the uh, emerging situation as well as to connect to resources which help you prepare or uh, where to go if you have been evacuated. Laura Wilson, thank you so much and uh, all the best to you. By the way, uh, Highway 97 in the area used by many people, uh, that still is open, is it, Laura? As far as I'm aware at this point, yes, Highway 97 is open and residents can use it to uh, leave if they are needed. The headline from the province is BC supports research to protect coastal ecosystems. The news is new funding for the University of Victoria's Experimental Ocean Climate Change Lab, or Excel, and is to support research on the impact of climate change on the environment and the promotion of resilience and sustainability for BC's marine sector. That announcement is one at UVic, one of five being made for BC universities, all with the same theme, protecting the environment. And it comes down to innovation. To talk a little bit more about this, we bring in Brenda Bailey, Minister of Jobs, Environmental or Economic Development and Innovation for the province. And we have to ask the obvious question, why this investment? Yeah, thanks for the question, Bruce. So the uh, announcement today is in regards to BC's Knowledge Development Fund. It's a $6.5 million investment, and that is uh, 27 different funded projects across five universities in British Columbia. And I'll share with you that the Knowledge Development Fund has been a really important tool 
to support uh, critical research for many, many years. Um, we've invested over $860 million since its inception in 1998. And it's led to um, 45 new licenses and uh, 266 provisional or granted patents and 67 spin-off companies. So it's a really, really important part of our research and development ecosystem. Now, what I find interesting here, if I'm reading it right, is we're taking a look at innovation and connecting it to some of the impacts on climate and possibly coming up with BC-made solutions. You've got some inspiration from other places in the world. Tell me about it. Yeah, I would say that British Columbia has been uh, a leader in um, clean technology and also blue economy. And uh, some of that is supported in the research dollars that we're pushing out the door now. So I'll share with you a couple of examples. I had the opportunity yesterday to be in Victoria and attended a, a really interesting research lab in Sydney. Um, and it's focused on um, many different things, but including climate research in regards to, to ocean and what happens um, from warming sea levels and acidification and the like. But one of the pieces that they're looking at right now is the opportunity to sequester carbon in the ocean floor in the basalt rock. Now, apparently, from what I understand from Professor Kate Moran there yesterday, is that this sequestration would do absolutely no harm to the ocean or to any ocean uh, creatures. And it would uh, sequester this carbon into basalt forever. So it's a really interesting possibility. Because, of course, the research that we're supporting, some of it is in regards to how to mitigate for climate change, how to build more resiliency. For example, some research going into um, types of genomic changes that can happen to seashells uh, to support the food industry, the seafood industry. But there's also a really important factor, which is about changing the environment for the better long-term, carbon sequestration, reversing the effects of climate change. And certainly, I don't need to draw to anyone's attention in British Columbia how serious and significant the impacts of climate change are in our province. Well, this is certainly interesting, and I know part of this announcement focuses on the University of Victoria's Experimental Ocean Climate Change Lab. Uh, what's happening there, and what uh, can we see come out of uh, extra funding for it? Yeah, so the Excel Lab in, at the University of Victoria received $175,000 to establish and measure effects of marine climate change on organisms. And there's quite a bit of uh, research uh, in similar categories going on in the province, but I think what's important for people to know is it's all very cumulative, and the data is shared among uh, scientists. So I, I really saw this when I was um, in Victoria yesterday, that the, the data sharing is a very important piece about this, so that researchers and scientists worldwide can have access to data and work collectively on really important solutions. Is this going to help out and lead to possibly jobs in our province? Yeah, a couple things I'd like to say on that, Bruce, if you don't mind. Of course, I, I come from the tech sector. I'm new to politics. I just ran in 2020, but 20 years in the tech sector. Yep. And I, I do always try to take the opportunity to um, help people understand what's happening in our sector, because it's not true that massive downturn in the tech sector is happening in British Columbia. That's just not correct. That has been happening in Silicon Valley because of uh, a lot of um, very aggressive hiring that occurred during the pandemic. That happened here to some degree, but not the same as the really large tech companies. Big tech has been affected by layoffs much more 
than small and medium-sized tech. And British Columbia is largely small and medium-sized tech. But two years ago, we had 13 tech unicorns, and now we're not seeing that. Well, I've been seeing those unicorns continue to grow, and I would uh, suggest to you that we have more coming. Uh, We are the fastest-growing tech sector in North America. CBRE did that research, and it's been true two years in a row. We're seeing incredible growth in the tech sector. And I personally have been tracking a number of different layoff categories. For example, the layoffs at Thinkific. Every single person who got laid off found work. There's still far more jobs available than there are workers in our tech ecosystem. So I don't accept the sort of doom and gloom perspective that some people have on tech in BC. We're seeing incredible growth. And although there's been some changes and some layoffs, people are landing on their feet. So having said that, it's also true, and your point is really valid, that these investments are an enhancement to our tech sector. We have a real opportunity in British Columbia because of our commitment to the environment. People in BC care about the environment. That's true with our technologists as well. And we are establishing ourselves as world leaders for a number of different categories of clean tech, including hydrogen. So what's often referred to as Hydrogen Valley, paralleling Silicon Valley, is actually in Burnaby. And we have um, more than half of the hydrogen companies in Canada are located here in British Columbia. So really great opportunities come from that. Of course, high-paying jobs, and we care about that. But importantly, finding solutions to tackle the thorny problem of climate change that can be applied in our domestic context and exported around the world. Talking with Jobs, Economic Development, Innovation Minister Brenda Bailey. You know, one of the things that anybody that uh, follows academia can draw a parallel between is strong universities and strong research centers and businesses that build up around them and industries that build up around them. And we see that in hubs like, uh, well, even Seattle and San Francisco, San Jose, all the way down to even the health sector with San Diego. You mentioned the green sector, and I, I agree that BC has a place, and perhaps that place is really concentrating on green tech or enviro tech, whatever you want to call it. Uh, How do we put ourselves on the international map? Yeah, you're quite right that that is happening right now, and we are on the international map for these uh, particular uh, areas of technology for sure, and we're continuing to grow that. And there's a number of different organizations in British Columbia that really help us tell our story internationally. It's not something we've historically been good at. I don't know how you were raised, but for me, my grandmother used to teach me, whatever you do, don't toot your own horn. And that's a very Canadian sentiment. But you know what? It doesn't serve us well when we're out at conferences and uh, in international events. We do need to toot our own horn. We need to talk about the incredible work that we're doing. We're getting a lot of recognition uh, in regards to that. But I do want to just take your comment about the importance of a university ecosystem and how it can grow segments of the economy because I think perhaps no example is stronger than the biotech example in British Columbia. UBC has particularly, but SFU and UVic as well, UBC has an extraordinary lipid nanoparticle um, uh, professor, Peter Cullis, and that, that individual has trained so many students in this area that have spun out companies out of UBC. So I'm thinking about companies like Celera and others. Amgen is another one um, in the life sciences sector. And we've created a life sciences um, uh, strategy in order to support the continuing growth of that sector. And British Columbia is becoming known worldwide for the research that we're doing. So 
we're very good at research in British Columbia. We have been for a long time. Our challenge is to make sure we're also good at commercialization and that we're known worldwide. So that's what sits ahead of us. But I still think uh, that there is this almost dichotomy, and I wonder if it's false, and I'd love to get your opinion on that, that there is a green economy and then this old resource-based economy in B.C., because there's so much technology that's happening right now with the mining industry, with the forest industry, and some of that is, in fact, green. But we don't do a very good job, I would argue, in this province of making sure people understand that it's still green, even though it's with some of these old resource-based industries. What do you think? I love that question. And I can tell you that my thinking on this has changed since I've come into politics. I used to have the perspective there was the old economy and the new economy. And I don't believe that to be true anymore because I have the great privilege of meeting so many different companies and seeing what they're doing. So to your point, it used to be this sense that technology was its own sector. And that's kind of what the future held. But the reality is, is technology and innovation happens across the entire economy. And we're seeing amazing innovations happening in spaces like forestry and mining. Um, and, and that's a really um, interesting advantage that British Columbia can have as well, because we have such a thriving tech sector, and we are a traditional economy. And the solutions that our scientists and our technologists are coming up with are really innovative and can be delivered in other markets as well. So for example, I've met recently with a company that's using AI for solutions in mining that are just incredibly innovative. We're also seeing solutions in traditional industry in bringing down GHG emissions. So, so, so important. And British Columbia is doing amazing work in that regard as well. Bruce Claggett in for Jazz Joe Hall. We have been talking with the Honourable Brenda Bailey, Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation, talking about uh, the green sector and new funding for protecting coastal ecosystems, the latest here. But one of the questions that I always like to ask, what about, it's good for the province, what about the feds? Minister, do we have the federal government uh, kicking in their part? Yeah, I would, I would answer this in two parts. There are some areas of our work as a province where we really do need to see the feds more involved. For example, housing. And I was very happy to hear uh, Minister Fraser make an announcement about some housing supports in Vancouver yesterday. That's great news. We need much more of that. The feds stepping back from housing has been a real problem for our province, and people are feeling it. But I have to say, in the area that I'm responsible for in the um, you know, jobs, economic development, and innovation space. We've had some really good collaboration with the feds of late. I'll share, for example, I talked about Abcelera, one of the spin-off companies out of UBC that's really growing and becoming an anchor company in British Columbia. The province um, supported their growth with $75 million, and that unlocked $225 million from the feds and $400 million from the company themselves to build out a $700 million campus in Mount Pleasant. And that's a really important um, component of the ecosystem that we want to see develop. We want to make sure we have anchor companies, and it's going to be 500 high-paying jobs. So that type of collaboration makes makes it work. And I have to say, we've been really pleased with some of the um, the ways that we've been able to partner in the feds with the feds in in that sector. What's exciting coming down the pike? I, I've got an amazing portfolio. I'm I'm very fortunate to be in this role. There's so much happening. You know, British Columbia's greatest strength is our people. There's just no question about it. And I get to see incredible scientists, amazing technologists, um, really, really delivering on the promise uh, of 
solutions that we need, not only in British Columbia, but all over the world. And seeing that happen is, is pretty extraordinary. I know that it's um, a scary time for folks. You know, what's happening here in the province in regards to wildfires and all over the country and, frankly, all over the world really puts a sharp point on the importance of us putting so much effort into addressing climate change. This is World Honeybee Day on Saturday coming up, and I have a confession to make. I've always loved honeybees, and they're not to be confused, and I've corrected many a person over my years uh, with other bees, and certainly not to be confused with wasps. Honeybees are the good guys, and, uh, you know, there's so much about them that is not only good for providing honey, but also good as pollinators. And to talk a little bit about this in advance of World Honeybee Day on Saturday, we bring in Cabral Herrera. She is a service tech at Orkin Canada and the in-house beekeeper at their Coquitlam location. Cabral, thanks so, uh, so much for joining us. Am I right to say the honeybees are the good guys? Yes, that is correct. And, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I always find it just amazing when people say, oh, bees, they're so terrible. Well, honeybees are really great. You're a beekeeper. Tell me why you think they're so great. I think they're so great because they are fundamental for the health of our ecosystem as well as food security. And they are also just magnificent creatures. Now, for those who may not be aware, there are differences between nests and hives and this type of thing. And that's also where confusion comes in. Honeybees themselves, if you have honeybees around, what are they in and is it a problem? Um, they are in a hive and they it's not a problem unless you bother them because they are here to protect not to protect, sorry, but just they're here to help instead of being an issue to humans. Yeah, and uh, they don't necessarily, if I've got it right from what I've understood over the years, they don't go around looking for trouble. In fact, if they sting you, they die. That's not true with other stinging insects, is it? That's correct. So tell me a little bit more about... Uh, what you are thinking in terms of World Honeybee Day and the protection, because I understand they're uh, really uh, dwindling in their numbers, especially here in the Lower Mainland. Correct. So Canadian beekeepers lost a record number of hives last year. Uh, that would be due to habitat loss, intensive farming practices, and climate change. So last year, in 2022, we lost 50% while the annual hive loss averages usually about 35%. That's a big loss. And that's happening, yeah. is it consistent in all the areas around the lower mainland per se? Per se, because lots of people follow, you know, the same realm of doing things. So, yeah. But yeah, I could hear in your voice. Many, it's yeah, kind it's, of frustrating, kind isn't of it? Sad. It is, but um, working for Orkin, we've actually been expanding our honeybee sustainability program. Tell me about that. So we've been housing new honeybee hives across the country. 
with new hives in branches within Ontario and British Columbia. So I personally have three hives that I'm taking care of right now, and they're all thriving. Um, I actually just took my honey, my beekeeper's course uh, about a week ago, just so that I can have proper knowledge of absolutely everything to tend to these bees as best to my knowledge that I can. But Orkin is now the national pest control leader is adding hives in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Alberta as part of Orkin Canada's pollinator protection program. So I'm super proud of being part of that. You know, it's kind of funny, and you must get this a lot. Uh, you think of Orkin and controlling pests, and then you think, okay, but you're saving bees over here. But it really goes to show that there is a difference between good and bad when it comes to your flying uh, creepy crawlers, I guess, right? Of course. If we're able to just take the queen instead of um, harming a protected species, then all the power to us, right? Now, I've got to ask, uh, as you, a person that hasn't been a beekeeper for long, how difficult is it for the average person and what's required to get into keeping bees? I mean, lots of people go into it for different reasons. Um, And what started me off with this is just the care that I have for bees that has grown immensely with the last couple of months that I've been having to get this opportunity um, and just finding out all the knowledge. And I do suggest that anybody that is willing to commit to this amazing hobby, if you want to call it that, um, all the power to them because they are amazing and they are responsible for pollinating more than 130 varieties of fruits and vegetables So that's over a third of the food that we eat. So without bees, I mean, it's going to be very difficult to sustain a healthy ecosystem. Indeed. Now, also, you've got uh, three setups, I guess, uh, for the bees that you mentioned. Um, How much honey are you uh, getting or any yields yet? I, I... I have not yet. Um, That's next Friday. We are going to be working on collecting the honey. And then we can share it to all of our employees and customers to take home and enjoy and appreciate it. For this part of it, if people want any more information, is there a website they can go to? Uh, OrkinCanada.com. I'm pretty sure they have something on there as we get more into the realm of doing this um, more and more and more as I said that we are going to be adding um, lots of hives that this is going to be more of a bigger thing than we think that it is because we're trying to do better for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.